Um, okay. Welcome back to Talking Knicks, presented by John Boy Media. I'm Tom Piccolo, coming at you for another Monday edition of the podcast. We are recording this shortly after the Knicks beat the Clippers 110-102 to at home in the Garden. Uh, the, the week leading up to it wasn't as good, and we're going to talk about it. I am joined today by my buddy Kenny. So let's do it. Kenny, let's talk Knicks. So yeah, like I said, I'm joined by my friend Kenny. Kenny Poon. What's going on, man? Hey, Tom. Good to be here. How's it going? Uh, just, uh, you know, pretty quiet weekend. Hanging out, watching some, uh, some football, some mix today. They got the win today, which was nice, but nothing, nothing too crazy. What's, what's going on in your world over there? Yeah, I'm wondering, do you, do you dig the Sunday afternoon games, these matinee games kind of smack dab in the middle of your weekend day? Are you, do, you, do you enjoy that, or do you think it kind of like takes up too much of the day? I mean, when they win, it's fine. Um, for me, it's like uh, Sunday is my rest day anyway. It's like I don't like to do stuff on Sundays. So like sitting at home watching the Knicks could be worse things to do. Um, but if the Knicks lose, then obviously it just ruins your entire Sunday and uh, puts you in the wrong, wrong mindset going into the work week. Yeah, thankfully we didn't have to worry about that this week. Um, though, you know, the, I would say that earlier in this week we're kind of like the – almost like the nadir of the season. Um, that that three-game losing streak at home to the Pelicans on Monday, the Timberwolves on Tuesday, and then the Pelicans really a blowout on Thursday, those were some some real ugly – losses and I felt like I mean I don't know how you felt it seemed like Nick's particularly on Twitter where I spent a lot of my time Nick's Twitter was toxic capital T toxic it was it was pretty ugly um I don't know we're you tend I feel like both of us tend to never get too high or too low but where did you find yourself kind of emotionally with after that three game losing streak uh I didn't love it Tom I'm gonna be honest with you uh the Hornets Timberwolves and Pelicans like I think both the Hornets and the Pelicans are overachieving a little bit, but they're still not like great teams. And the Timberwolves have like the same spot. They're like a middling team. And this is kind of the easy part of our schedule for the next few weeks. So losing those three games coming out of the three-game winning streak against the Spurs, Mavericks, and Hawks wasn't great. Like I would have liked to, to build a, a few games above 500 going into kind of the next stretch of games, which and if you haven't looked at the schedule, February is rough. Uh, so didn't feel all that great about it. And, uh, kind of the way that they lost didn't make me feel any better. I don't, I don't know if that's, that's too dark, Tom, but how, what was your take on that? No, I don't think it's too dark. I mean, obviously the, the Knicks offense looked just utterly anemic against that Charlotte Hornets team, only putting up 87 points. And then, you know, you go to, uh, to me, probably the, the turning point of the week was that Minnesota game where it felt like several times throughout the game, like the Knicks had it. Like there was, there was a point in that game. I want to say there was like three minutes left when the Knicks were up by, I mean, let me, I'm just looking right. The Knicks were, Kemba Walker hit a three with th- just under four minutes left to put the team up five. And I just felt really good. Like Kemba had hit, just hit, I think it was his third three was, in a row. Yeah. I mean, he was just lighting it up. It felt like he was about to take us home. And just there was a lot of good vibes at that point, and I just didn't expect kind of the the meltdown or just the the, the la- I mean, yeah, it was I would call it a meltdown the rest of the way in. So so to me, like a loss to the Hornets earlier in the week, that was coming off a three game win streak. So it's like yeah, you know, losses happen sometimes. Um, you let down, but but that Timberwolves game felt like it was there for the taking. This is against a team, you know. Uh, Anthony Edwards has like talked some trash about RJ Barrett in the past. So you were really hoping for a big performance from RJ and he kind of went the other way and just sort of really fell apart, especially down the stretch and some brutal turnovers. So I think that that Timberwolves game really kind of skewed my view of the week overall. I made it all seem worse than it was. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what I was saying. The way the Knicks lost these games, like uh, I think, 
which game one of the games they only lost by 10 but it was not that competitive like they new orleans the, the new orleans game like they lost by way more than 10 even though the scoreboard said they lost by 10 like it was bad and then like you said the timberwolves game it felt like they had that game won and you know the just their execution down the stretch there was a lot of kind of missed free throws and big opportunities and then even when minnesota left the door open with uh I don't remember who it was. Maybe Patrick Beverly missed uh, the front end, front end of the free throws, like towards the end of the game. Like the Knicks couldn't capitalize, and yeah, so like McDaniel's, McDaniel's missed that free throw with like 90 seconds left, and really kept the door open, like you said. Um, but man, free throws have been an issue. I mean, certainly in the recent part of the season, RJ Barrett missed a, a huge free throw um, with two minutes left. And then more notably, Julius Randle missed his, you know, the first of two potentially game-tying free throws with 24 seconds left. And I think, you know, a lot of Knicks fans are, are starting, certainly at that point, we're starting to turn on Randle for his crunch time. Free throw shooting execution in general. And actually that, that does, that sort of narrative kind of played out in this Clippers game today as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But man, the, the free throws, what's going on? Yeah, and it, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, I think just how well, particularly Julius Randle, shot the ball last year from the free throw line and even like in the clutch. Like He was a guy that I would want to see on the line, but this year, I don't know what it is. If he gets the ball on the free throw line, like in the clutch situation where you know we're down by a couple or up by a couple, I have very little confidence that he's going to make both free throws. I I have no explanation for it. I mean, RJ, RJ Barrett, it's more, a little more expected. He's been kind of a very streaky shooter throughout. Uh, he didn't come into the NBA expected to be a good shooter. Last year, he closed the last you know, several months of the season shooting much hotter, but like, he's not a guy that I anticipated being a shooter and I kind of expect you know, these ups and downs. And, but like, the, the Julius Randle thing is more baffling to me. Yeah, I had pulled up some clutch numbers from Randall. Um, and, and so from the free throw line, last year, Randall in clutch situations, which NBA.com defines as the score within five points with under five minutes left to go. Um, last year, he shot 79.4%, nearly 80% from the free throw line in clutch situations. And this year, that number is down to 65%. And I think it gets worse kind of as you move the, you know, the, the marker for uh, time remaining down and the score closer, it just gets worse and worse. So yeah, it's, it has not been good um, for Randall at the charity stripe. And it, it, it is hard to have like a whole lot of confidence in him when he steps up there. But yeah, that, that Timberwolves game was tough, especially, I think that was the one where, I mean, Fournier was red hot, right? He, he finished that game. 10 of 17 from the field, five of 10 from three for 27 points. And he definitely cooled off in crunch time, but he was kind of one of the key reasons that we were even in that one. Um, yeah. But like I said, I, I did feel like the Timberwolves game kind of skewed my perception for the rest of the week, but you know, I'll, I'll do, I, I'll be, yeah, go ahead. I, I think just one thing about the Timberwolves game that we haven't mentioned that is kind of important, but I don't want to blame the loss um, on the referees, but, you know, the NBA did come back and say that there were three missed calls on very big calls in the last two minutes. Uh, all three of them went against the Knicks. Uh, so that's, you know, it feels like that has been something that has happened to the Knicks a lot over the last couple of years uh, where, you know, borderline calls don't go in their favor and, you know, even not borderline, very obvious calls do not go in their favor at the end of games. Uh, but you know, the Knicks did, certainly didn't help themselves, but the refs didn't help them either. So it's, it, it was just – the whole package was, was just tough to swallow. Yeah, it's a good point. There was that clip that I know talking Knicks uh, – I think you clipped it that kind of went viral of, of R.J. Barrett getting the shove from – it was D'Angelo Russell, right? Yep. Um, right in front of the refs. Right in front of the refs, <laughs> off that deflection and potential steal. Um, and it was, it was huge. And, again, like you said, don't want to blame the refs. The, the Knicks still had plenty of opportunities to win this one. And but even – 
and, and again, like, I don't want to blame the refs. And even in that situation, uh, like we said, the, the Timberwolves ended up missing their free throw. So the Knicks had the opportunity to tie or take the lead even after that happened. Because mm-hmm. after that, the Knicks ended up fouling and sending McDaniels to the line. And he missed one of two and kept the Knicks in the game. And they didn't execute. So, like, that did not determine the game. It didn't help, though. And certainly uh, the, the other calls that were one that um, – eventually led to a Fournier turnover. He got, uh, I think, whacked on the arm by Carl Anthony Towns, and that caused him to lose the ball, and Minnesota took the ball. And then uh, the big one was, um, on, re- on review, Carl Anthony Towns on the go-ahead bucket grabbed Julius Randle's arm, preventing him from defending, and then he went on to make the shot and get fouled for the go-ahead and one, which is tough. It was tough, and, you know, that was the game where Mitchell Robinson fouled out early. Taj Gibson then fouled out on a very dubious call, and Patrick Beverly kind of baited him into something, um, baited the refs, I should say, into a call. Uh, so we were kind of down some bigs towards the end there. And against Carl Anthony Towns, that, that's an issue. You know, Cat had a, had a play where he uh, – was that the play you're referring to where Cat where made the go-ahead basket? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so – it's, so, I mean, I, I think the play went something like Carl uh, Anthony Towns had the ball about the free throw line and he yep. drove left. But when he like started to drive, he reached out with his right hand and grabbed Julius Randle to prevent him from defending. And then he continued on with his drive and you know, made his shot and got fouled. I see. I mean, for me, the, the biggest thing I was looking for in that game was for RJ Barrett to really step up. I mean, I know it's like a, a joke to call that a rivalry with Anthony Edwards because, you know, the Knicks play the Timberwolves so few times. And, you know, there was just that, that one incident where Anthony Edwards said, you know, after a game that they really wanted R.J. Barrett, he was the guy they wanted to take a shot during, uh, during crunch time. And so I could see R.J. like getting up for this game, but he probably psyched himself out. He ended up, um, you know, he shot 6 of 16 from the field, 2 of 7 from 3, just 3 of 6 from the free throw line and then finish the game with two assists to seven turnovers. So, I mean, that's, that's a brutal ratio ratio. He had that terrible turnover where he threw it directly to Anthony Edwards in a crucial moment. Um, and, and it was troubling because, you know, all week RJ was kind of struggling and he was coming off of last week where he was our guy. Um, and, and people were saying things like he's turned a corner, he's making the leap, all those things that we say when he has like a hot three game stretch but, uh, you know, he proceeded to, to kind of struggle against uh, the, the Pelicans as well. He was 6 of 13 from the field, including 1 of 5 from 3, just 4 of 7 from the free throw line, finished with 17 points. But, you know, the, the starters were just abysmal in that Pelicans game. It seemed like there was no continuity. Um, and, and I think part of that, I'm curious where you land on, on the Kemba, Walk, Kemba Walker situation because, you know, he came back for that, uh, Timberwolves game played in the Pelicans game as well. And, you know, it, it seemed like we had started to find a little bit of, of flow to the offense and, and a pecking order where we understood that like Randall and Barrett were the two guys who were going to dominate the ball. And then Kemba comes back and he's the lead ball handler and, and the offense kind of sputtered though. Obviously I mentioned, I mean, Kemba was on fire in crunch time against the Timberwolves, but I'm just curious, you know, individual performances aside, how you feel like Kemba's, fitting in with this group? I mean, I am on the record several times as saying I think the Knicks need a point guard out there. Like, uh, I know they had success without a point guard against the Spurs, Mavericks, and Hawks, but, like, throughout the season, that has not been the case. And there has been times when, like, they just have no order. Uh, So I'm in favor of having Kemba out there, and, you know, I don't think Kemba was the reason for either of those losses, although, you know, uh, plenty of people blame Kemba for a lot. And, like, I think he actually played particularly, like you said, particularly well against uh, Minnesota. And, you know, the, the Knicks need some order and, and not having uh, both Kemba and Derrick Rose out for a while, like, that, that hasn't helped them have a cohesive understanding of where the offense is going. I think it leads to a lot of, you know, Julius Randle going one-on-one and R.J. Barrett going one-on-one, which, you know, the, doesn't lead to the, you know, the optimal offense, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's just I, I'm still curious kind of how the offense would have looked had Kemba never been just benched permanently and if he would have just had a chance to kind of run the second unit, especially with Derrick Rose out. 
I feel like the second unit desperately needs a lead ball handler um, to help that group keep their composure. Cause that second unit was such a weapon for us. And it kind of hasn't been um, recently because of the lack of a lead ball handler with Burks kind of playing a lot of those starters minutes, but um, I, I don't know. Like, a, I'm, just, I'm just curious to see how Kemba would have looked um, as, as the, the kind of six man coming off the bench. And as kind of a related question, Tom, how do you feel about, you know, a lot of people are pushing for Emmanuel quickly to play some point guard. You know, they, they had Burks in that role and like, like the only healthy point guard on the roster and he's only semi-healthy is Kemba Walker. So how do you feel about having those other guys as point guard or should it be someone else? Should like they have people are talking like RJ Barrett as the, the point forward type player. Like what, where do you think in there? I mean, I think that some guys have done some really good breakdowns of this um, Ben Ridholtz of Knicks film school and the Strickland comes to mind where whenever the Knicks play against a, a team that like traps the ball handler or applies a lot of ball pressure, that's where your RJs and your quicklies struggle. They, they aren't those professional point guard types like Kemba can handle a trap or, or, you know, like a high hedge from the big, and, and not get rattled and, and find the easy outlet and kind of relieve the pressure. RJ has really struggled to do that. Um, it, it's kind of just making the simple play, but you have to, you know, anticipate you to be able to read the defense, know where guys are going to be and where they're going. Um, I don't have a great deal of faith that like RJ can do that against those types of high pressure defenses, but against normal drop coverage, pick and roll defenses, the kind that we mostly see, see on a night to night basis I, I'm comfortable with guys like with like Burks being sort of the table setter, but even quickly being a table setter and getting the ball in the hands of RJ or Randall to run the offense through like, and even Fournier too. Like those are guys who get, can get into the teeth of the defense. I'm comfortable with that against most defenses, but it does become an issue against some of those just more aggressive schemes. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think Minnesota is one example of those, one of those teams that was heavily pressuring the ball, but we had, we had Kemba and when he was in, I think he was a plus seven in that game. So that might speak to what you're talking about. Um, Again, like I'm on the record as saying I want a point guard on the floor because I, I mean, I think Burks has struggled in that role and we're taking him out of what he's good at, which is being, you know, a scorer off the bench. And it's this, it would be the same thing that we do to quickly if we put him in at point guard, like, I don't like, I think people think he's capable of it and he, he may be capable of it, but that's not what he does best. Like today, he, I think he came off the bench and had a very strong showing offensively, like scoring a bunch of points, setting up a bunch of points, but it wasn't like completely on him to, to set up the offense. And I mean, I think one thing that, that comes to mind is uh, I think you and I are both reading the, the new Chris Herring book, um, Blood in the Garden. And there was one point where he mentions, you know, the, the next point guard, I think it was Doc Rivers at the time went out with an injury and uh, John Starks had to take over pretty much a bunch of time at the point guard. And like, that's not his role. And like, that's, that's how I, when I read that, I thought about Burks and I thought about quickly because like those guys I think are better as like offensive scorers. And that was very much the case with John Starks. And like, I don't want to take that away from them by making them, you know, set up other people. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's tricky. We've seen quickly, again, in some situations, like really distribute the ball quite well and run and play some of that point guard. Like in some defenses, it's really not tenable. But, I mean, that's the thing with Derrick Rose out. That second unit, you do need quickly to be the point guard for that group, right? With the, with the Grimes, um, Toppin. I mean, Toppin desperately needs a proper point guard, like a capital P, capital G point guard. And Kemba Walker is that. Like, I just think that Kemba would just unleash Toppin in a great way. Um, whereas the starting unit doesn't really need Kemba's ball dominance because they have guys who, who thrive with the ball in their hands or at least to be as effective as they can be, Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, they do need the ball in their hands, right? So that's why I'm just trying to find some balance here because it, it does seem to me like Randle in particular struggles – to find a balance with Kemba when the, when Kemba's initiating and running the show, Julius can completely disappear. And, you know, we a hundred percent saw that against new Orleans where I, I didn't, I mean, first of all, I didn't think that Kemba was aggressive enough against new Orleans, but 
either way, Randall finished that game one of nine from the field um, and like was not looking to shoot the ball at all. So it just, it just looked like an awkward fit. And these are small sample sizes, right? I'm talking about one particular game, but over the course of a season, it does start to add up. So, you know, I'm not sitting here thinking like, Oh, Tibbs is screwing everything up. Like he should really, I'm just curious to know what it would look like with Kemba running that second unit. Cause the second unit, needs some some leadership and it, it frankly it needs Derek Rose but he's not available right now so Kemba to me is the next best thing and then inserting someone like you know Burks or a game manager like quickly to just sort of set the table and play strong perimeter defense for that starting unit is very intriguing for me yeah and I, I think uh, I'm, I misunderstood what you were talking about initially um, I thought you meant like full strength with uh, Derek Rose in the lineup that that that's when we would have Kemba coming off the bench but I, I am seeing what you're saying, and it's making sense to me, just because, like you said, like we have a lot of playmakers. Like, the entire starting lineup, with the except, exception of Mitchell Robinson, is capable of making plays for themselves. And to your point, Obi Toppin is not that player yet. Uh, I think a lot of people want him to be, and a lot of people kind of think that he somewhat is right now, but he's just not. Uh, and I think his play has struggled mightily since Derrick Rose went down and the Knicks have been just generally without a point guard. So I'm, I'm buying in. I'm very much buying into to what you're saying right now. Yeah, I think it would just be an interesting look. Um, and, you know, even Quentin Grimes, I put out a video uh, for Talking Knicks that kind of highlighted his passing, but it's been mainly as, as beating closeouts. You know, he's such a good shooter that defenders sprint at him and he's able to blow by guys on closeouts and then make plays for, for his teammates in that capacity. So Quentin Grimes isn't, you know, you don't dump the ball to Quentin Grimes and he goes and makes a play for someone. You know what I mean? Um, so that, that's kind of, you know, in that similar mold to Toppin, they need a point guard. And, and right now the second unit doesn't have one when it's quickly in Burks as those main ball handlers for the second unit. It's the same issue as the starting unit, but with just a lot fewer guys who thrive with the ball in their hands. So that's, that's where I'm coming from there. But, but Kenny, I think we've, we've probably rehashed those games enough. We can talk about today's game, uh, you know, the only win of the week, the only bright spot of the week, and as the win against the Clippers. Um, did you see anything in particular that you liked in this one, anyone that you wanted to shout out as having had a particularly strong game? I think the, the two obvious answers are R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle both had very strong all-around games. Uh, I think R.J. Barrett in particular was just getting to the rim, getting out in transition. Like, he was doing everything you want to see R.J. Barrett do. And he also, you know, he pulled down 14 boards. And, like, when he was pulling down those boards, he immediately started pushing. I think I, I posted a couple clips of him. He pulled down a board and then got he got all the way downhill to to a layup. And then I think... The next uh, a couple plays later, he get, pulled down a board, went all the way down, and uh, had, had a nice pass to Julius Randle, who got fouled on his way up. So, like, that's – I love to see that from, uh, from R.J. Barrett, and I think that's going to be a big strength. But the Knicks play so slow generally that we haven't seen it a lot, but I really love to see it today, that just how much that R.J. Barrett got out and running. That's a great call, Kenny. The, uh, the grab-and-go of R.J. Barrett is just such a strength of his – um, especially when he's looking to pass. I know Steve Popper tweeted a few games ago that, you know, RJ passed the ball on a fast break and that you just can't predict NBA basketball because it, it is rare. You know, RJ kind of gets that tunnel vision in the open court, but we've started to see him look for teammates and that pass, that dump off to Julius Randle in transition. First of all, Barrett showed some serious burst there to get in front of the pack and actually make that a fast break. That could have just been kind of semi-transition or just half court offense but he got out there and made a concerted effort to beat everyone down the court. And, and, you know, when he passed it to, to Julius, that's not going to show up in the stat sheet. There's no assist there. It's just a good play for his teammates. So that was awesome. Um, you know, RJ did finish the game with six assists to just one turnover, which is an incredible ratio that I would, I would love to see more often. Um, especially coming off, you know, that Minnesota game where I think I said he had seven turnovers when RJ is being careful with the ball like that, it's he's just such a just such a beneficial player having on the court he was he played for 43 minutes of this game against the clippers which is pretty wild to see you don't see those kinds of those kinds of numbers in non overtime games but i'm with you man rj was was awesome he did finish just 9 of 24 from the field 
and that includes three of five from three. So, you know, six of 19 from two, that's not very good, obviously. Um, you'd like to see him finish better around the basket. Yeah, and I'll say I think he, he got cold towards the end of the fourth quarter. I think those numbers were a little better, and then I think he went like 0 for 3, 0 for 4 down the stretch. But a big thing that, uh, that's here on the stat sheet is 7 for 7 from the free throw line, Tom. Let's How do you go. feel about that? <laughs> Love it. Oh, man. Yeah, need more of that. Um, yeah, Kenny, we can talk about – you mentioned down the stretch. We could talk about kind of how the Knicks offense looked as things got tighter in that fourth quarter because I think a lot of Knicks fans were just really lamenting, bemoaning, if you will, the Knicks style of offense, just the dump it to Randall, ISO, um, kind of how, how that played itself out uh, over the course of the fourth quarter towards the end of the game, because it did lead to, to some missed shots, some turnovers, and things maybe getting a little tighter than what you'd hope. So what, what did you think of the, the way the Knicks executed towards the end of the game? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's the Knicks playbook. At the, end of the, at the end of the fourth quarter, in a close game, they're going to give the ball to Julius Randle. And last year, it was very successful because Julius Randle did not miss a single mid-range jumper the entirety of last year. You can <laughs> fact-check me on that. And this year, that hasn't been the case. He's missed a ton of, of uh, mid-range jumpers. And I think you actually did a, uh, an article or something on this last year about just how ridiculously high his mid-range jumper percentage was last year. And like, you said at some point it needs to fall back to earth. And I think this year that's the case. Um, yeah, like, Kenny, after I wrote that, I called it like Dirk Nowitzki level, which is just all time. And I said, it has to come back down to earth. And then for the rest of the season after I wrote that, it actually went up, which is just incredible. But uh, I, I guess we should have known it was unsustainable. But uh, Kenny, I do have a, a, one other stat here that I looked up. This was coming into today's game. Um, this year in crunch time, Julius Randle is shooting two for 12 from three. So that's 16.7% from three during crunch time. Last year, he shot eight of 18. That's 44.4% on crunch time three. So that's 16% to 44% is the, the difference we're looking at there. Um, so yeah, it's safe to say his jump shot has kind of left him in the biggest moments this year, whereas last year it was quite the opposite. Yeah, and that's – there's nothing you can do to plan, plan for that because, like, I don't know – that's how NBA basketball is. At the end of the game, you're going to give the ball to your best player and expect that player to make plays. And Julius Randle hasn't really been able to do that that much this year. And because of that, the Knicks has, have struggled down the stretch. Like, I'm just looking at the, the play-by-play. And um, Evan Fournier hit a three with 4.52 left to put the Knicks up 106-94. to 94. Yeah, and Kenny, so, if, if you look at my, uh, at my Twitter, I did a whole thread of each, from that possession, every single offensive play that the Knicks ran from that point forward, I did a, a tweet for. And so on that play that you're referencing, they, dump, they get a switch where they get Reggie Jackson switched onto Julius Randle at the elbow. And basically they just post Randle up at the elbow on that mismatch, forces the Clippers to double team, and Randall just makes the right play. He's patient. He finds Barrett on the wing. Barrett kicks it to Fournier wide open in the corner. Splash. The next play down, they do the same exact thing. They get that Reggie Jackson switch onto Julius Randall on the elbow. This time, Randall kicks it to Noel, who kicks it to Fournier in the corner. This time, Fournier just happens to miss it. It's, again, a wide open three. It's a great look, good offense. It just doesn't fall. But, like, you, go, you could go play by play and see what the Knicks were trying to do. And with just a couple exceptions, the Knicks were just trying to force mismatches. You know, the, the Clippers countered the next time down by just hiding Reggie Jackson on R.J. Barrett. And so when Burks and, and Randall screen for each other, you know, a wing and gets switched onto, onto Julius Randall. It's Terrence Mann being switched onto Julius Randall instead of Reggie Jackson. And the Knicks probably could have countered by having R.J. Barrett run the action with Julius Randle, right, if you want to get that switch again. But it's just it's really curious to see kind of what the, the thought process is for this Knicks team down the stretch. Um, the, the next play down, they got, they got Reggie Jackson switched on to Julius Randle again. And guess what? Julius Randle just – he 
worked his magic in the middle of the court and got a mid-range jumper right over the top of Reggie Jackson. Nailed it. That's with three minutes left. Like, for the most part, this was producing good offense and good looks. And then I'll just say one more. The next play down was kind of the most – I call the most head-scratching play because they don't try to run any action to get a switch. There's no aim to get a mismatch. They just run a straight-up ISO Julius Randle against Marcus Morris, and it results in a 24-second violation. And it just it's strange for the Knicks to have gone away from what was working all those times before just to do a straight-up ISO like that. So that's, that's my long-winded way. I, I go into further detail on my tweet thread. But, you know, there is method to some of this madness, punishing switches, forcing double teams, and trying to make the right play. Randle didn't always do that down the stretch. And I think, you know, that's part of what frustrates fans, but you can't just say it's always straight ISO, straight ISO, straight ISO. There is some methodology to it. Yeah, Tom. And I think that's, you, you've covered it more than I possibly could. Uh, but like we're saying, like, I think at the end of the game, that is going to be the next playbook is to get the ball to Julius Randall and, you know, whatever they do around that, who knows, but that that's the play in the NBA. At the end of the game, you're going to get the ball into the hands of your best player. And if, but if you can get a guaranteed double team out of it, if you can draw two to the ball, that's what Thibodeau always says, like, that's a no-brainer. Do it. And then, you know, there was the one play where Randall spun right into a double team and then threw the ball away, and it was a live ball turnover. And I think that's what, you know, really ticked off Knicks fans. But first of all, Randall actually made some nice plays down the stretch. He made some, made some big shots too. Um, so I don't want to kill him too much. But, you know, that, you're right. Like, it, make or miss league, all the cliches, all that stuff. Um, p- part of me wondered maybe if they went away from RJ too much. Like, RJ was clearly the guy in much of the, the second half they were going to over and over with the same kind of sets. And then they just sort of stopped going to him and really went Randall-focused. Um, but given the fact that he was drawing double teams every time, maybe it made sense. Yeah, Tom, I think, I mean, like I, I, I sound like a broken record, but that's going to be the play is to get it to, to Julius Randle at the end of the game. And like I, I think I said a little bit before that, I, I think that uh, a little bit before they went away from RJ, he started to cool off a little bit. Because uh, I, know, I know towards the end of the game, he, he, was, he started missing a few shots. Not that, that, I, that in the past that has caused uh, Tibbs to go away from him because his one game winner was he was ice cold the entire game. And then he came in and it looked like RJ or uh, Tibbs drew up the play for him and, you know, he nailed it. So uh, like you said, it's a, it's a make or miss league and, and, you know, they got Randall the ball and several, several possessions. He made plays for others. Sometimes shots don't fall. That's, that's where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to begrudge too much of, of how that played out. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I went on probably too long for crunch time there, but I was very passionate about that, that stretch. And that's why I did a whole, whole thing on it so um yeah a couple other shout outs I thought Mitchell Robinson was was actually pretty dominant uh at least certainly on the offensive glass in his 16 minutes he rolled his ankle um it didn't it, I don't know did I couldn't really get a sense of he didn't obviously didn't return after his 16 minutes of play so you know hoping that he bounces back and is able we, we need a healthy Mitchell Robinson he is just a whole different uh you know ingredient to this team like he's just so big and so strong that uh that opponents are are rarely ready for that for his just aggressiveness on the offensive glass so um we'll definitely miss that but i just wanted to say that i thought nerland's noel came in and did a really good job uh defensively he had really active hands as he always does had three steals had a block as well and uh also hit like a step back jumper and uh, a tough hook shot he he was showing off the whole repertoire and in a long, like 16 foot jumper as well. Um, so yeah, I, I thought uh, Noel came in and, and gave some good minutes. Um, but Kenny, I think, unless you have anything else to say about Noel, which I'd be surprised if you did, uh, we should probably talk about Cam Reddish. One, one thing, not Noel specific, but uh, due to the, the Mitchell Robinson injury is a fun, fun little thing is that Taj Gibson came in for six minutes and got four fouls in that time, which I just respect. Love Taj. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, we should probably talk about uh, Cam Reddish. He played five minutes. Um, 
I don't know. I, I think a lot of fans would have expected him to play more than five minutes. Uh, but do you expect, did, would you expect him to play more than five minutes? Tom? I was just trying to think like where I would have set the over under at prior to this game. And I think I would have set it closer to that eight minute mark. I think that this probably was the under, um, but I think part of that was RJ Barrett playing 43 minutes. And the, I think in the wing spot. And I think the reason for that is because it got close at the end of the game. Like if the Knicks pulled away, then Cam Reddish was going to come in to close out that game. And I think that makes sense. Um, but like he just got to the team, he's been injured. Like he doesn't know the offense. He doesn't know the defense. So like, I think five minutes, not that worried about it. Um, and I, like, like you said, if, if, uh, this was not that close a game at the end, I would have expected him to get probably closer to 10, but I think a lot of people are expecting him to have a big role on this team. Like, are you in that same camp or do you think that there's a possibility that he kind of just is not as uh, involved as a lot of people are expecting? So I, I did like a solo pod last week and I kind of, you know, when I do these solo pods, I really forget what I say. I'm just kind of ranting the whole time and talking at nobody. And so I, I, I can't really remember everything I said about the reddish deal. I remember I said it was worth it, but I'm, I'm a reddish skeptic. I am like, I, I don't want to paint myself as like this negative fan, but after watching a lot of tape of him and looking at the numbers, I'm, I'm skeptical that he would add a lot of value to this team. I don't think he's going to step in and be a more valuable player than say Quentin Grimes. Grimes, by the way, had a rough day today. He was two of 10 from the field, still played 20 minutes. And when he's out there, he's just such a difference maker on defense. You see the way he like strategically double teams guys. He comes out of nowhere and, and like really makes plays on the ball. Like he's Grimes does more than the stat sheet would indicate. And I think that might be a classic Knicks fan thing to say about their young players, right? That's like a classic Frank Nielakina does more than the stat sheet will tell you. I, I think that like there may have been some rose colored glasses for Frank at times. Um, I, I think it, it probably rings even more true for Grimes. He's just more of an impact player. You really feel him out there on the floor much more than say Frank. Um, I'm, that's probably the last time I'm going to compare Grimes to Frank. I think I'm done with that comparison, but all that's to say, I don't expect Reddish to come and steal minutes from Grimes, steal minutes from Burks or RJ or quickly who plays a lot of the wing as well. Um, I don't, I just don't know where Reddish's minutes are going to come from. And I don't know that he necessarily deserves them. Like, and then I'm a, I'm gonna ask you what you think as well, but he probably it would be best utilized at the four and then there goes all your OB Toppin minutes. Just ever like you're definitely not having a three-player rotation at the power forward spot between Randall, Toppin, and Reddish. So I'm, I don't know, Kenny. I don't know where Reddish's minutes are going to come from, and and I, I'd be happy if he proved me wrong with his play. Yeah, I think I am higher on Reddish than you, but I am lower on Reddish than Nick's Twitter, which is. Which, you know, that's, that's not saying much. I think uh, generally Nick's Twitter is very reactionary. And I uh, texted you guys today that, you know, made the comparison between guys like Anthony Randolph, DSJ, uh, and Emmanuel Moutier, like guys who are tooly and, you know, have shown gl- so, some glimpses of what they might be in the NBA. And then they come to the Knicks and Knicks fans expect them to be, you know, their peak value, what you would expect, like, if everything came together. And I don't know that that's going to be the case for, for Cam Reddish. I think, you know, he has the potential to be a useful player. I don't know that he's going to come in and kind of be the star that people are expecting. And to your point um, about his best position being power forward, that is a thought that has crossed my mind is like the most likely place that he could step in is in place of Obi Toppin, who I know Knicks fans are in love with right now, but he is not been the same player since Derrick Rose went down like he is he is they have not gotten into transition as much which is his strength and he just looks awful shooting the ball uh so like I 
I just can't imagine that that's what happens is that Obi Toppin loses his minutes, but that would be emotions aside, that would be the most logical place for his minutes to come from. Man, that would start a riot in the garden. <laughs> but the thing is, like the thing is, that's his ability. He has more of an ability to create offense for himself and to dribble the ball than Obi Toppin does. And Obi, Obi needs to be spoon-fed by his point guard, and we don't have a point guard now. So that's – we don't have a backup point guard now, I should say. Uh, so that's, that's why Cam slipping into that spot, at least for the time being until – we have a point guard in that position, like makes some sense. And I think that's going to be controversial and I don't think people want to hear it, but it makes some sense. I look, Toppin can't really create for himself. Uh, your other guys out there, Grimes, not like I mentioned, not really. Gibson and Noel, when they're out there, no chance. Quickly can do a degree, but um, you, know, you don't want it to, you know, quickly as the point guard ostensibly of that second unit has to find a balance between, you know, getting his own buckets and looking for others. And, and he's still developing in that role as well. So, um, and then that's not his, like, you know, like you said, the primary spot for him to be successful. So I hear you. I, I don't, you know, to me, Cam Reddish reminds me a bit of Mario Hazonia where it's like, has these like tantalizing tools, the athleticism, uh, some of that ability to create. I think the Hazonia is actually a much better passer and kind of like cutter off ball player than reddish, but there's similar like shooting abilities and things like that. Um, but I don't know. Hazonia didn't really pan out as a very productive NBA player. Uh, reddish probably has certainly has more upside. I think he also has like longer wingspan can potentially protect the rim, even though the numbers indicate he's one of the most dreadful rim protectors in the league. Um, there's just more potential there, more higher ceiling, but I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be skeptical until he proves me wrong. Tom, let, I'm going to put you on the spot with a tough question right now. Who is a better player right now, Obi Toppin or Cam Reddish? It depends so much on the role that they're put in, you know, like, and this is a cop-out answer, but to your point, if, if this were earlier in the season and you had Derrick Rose running point, it's Obi Toppin, no question. I mean, Rose looked to feed Toppin in transition uh, to get out and run and just on lobs and cuts. You know, you, you, need that, you need that point guard to find Toppin, who's a very good cutter. Toppin is an excellent cutter, and he has to be. I mean, that was out of necessity. But not every player who can't shoot is a good cutter, right? That is still a skill that Toppin has. Um, I, you know, given the team's current reality without a point guard, your point about needing more creation makes sense. And in that context, I, don't, I think it's hard to argue that, you know, obviously Reddish is a better on-ball creator than Toppin. So who's a better player? It really depends on, it depends entirely on the context and the players around them. How's that for a political answer? Yeah. And I, and some as, as you said, it's a Cabo, but I think that's the right answer. Like, like, I, I know Nick fans and particularly Nick fans on Twitter love Obi Toppin, but he is just not the same player without a point guard setting him up. And like the last few weeks, like he's had a couple of good games, but a lot of it has been not great. And so like this would be the time if any, if ever there was a time for Cam Reddish to steal some of Obi's minutes, this would be that time. It's funny, like, even if he stole all of Obi's minutes today, he still would have only gotten 13 minutes total. So it's not like <laughs> it's like there's a great deal of minutes to go around there. But um, I don't know, in the five minutes that you did see Reddish, was, uh, was there anything that jumped out to you, or was it just too small to even consider? I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was very small. Uh, I tried to watch him on defense, but I, you know, I spend the, the games watching for, uh, doing clips, so I didn't catch much. Uh, he had the rebound and that he took to the to the other side and made a layup. Um, that was good. He had another rebound that I don't remember, and then he had the kind of pull up three that wasn't that great. And I think that's something I don't know if we talk about it on the pod or off the pod that that's not necessarily his strong point is the the pull up three. He's a he's a good shooter off the catch, um, and so like it was kind of what you expect for five minute sample size. 
Yeah, he's definitely a better shooter off the catch. And I think that, you know, the bigger issue for him has been uh, dribbling into mid-range jumpers and, like, shooting fadeaway mid-range jumpers and just really taking shots that are, even for very good shooters, are low-percentage shots. And, uh, and, you know, Cam is still, still <laughs> trying to make his way to becoming a good shooter. I'm looking at his pull-up numbers right now. And, yeah, he hits 28% on pull-up threes. So, clearly not, not what you want there. He, takes, he does take a lot of pull-up twos. And um, it appears to be about the same number, about 28% on pull-up twos as well. So, yeah, catch and shoot. Catch and shoot. That's what you want um, out of Cam Reddish. We'll, I'm sure we'll have more to say on him as we see more. But, Kenny, I think that's all I've got on, on what we saw this past week. Are there, are there any kind of narratives or, or things people are – on the internet are talking about there's a lot of Tibbs discourse whether he's doing a good job coaching this team I I think he's fine like I I don't know yeah I think, I think my my one comment on uh, Tib Tibbs talk is like do people not remember before Tibbs like there are and I think this is a kind of a Greg Greg take that there are like coaches there's like five good coaches in the league and everyone else is just fine and a lot of a lot of the fine people end up looking good because of the talent they have. Um, and the Knicks last few coaches, like I think maybe Hornacek might have been fine. Fisdale was bad. Derek Fisher was bad. Mm-hmm. And like Hornacek, like he was somewhere between fine and bad. <laughs> Tibbs, Tibbs, I think, is a good coach. Uh, now he and uh, it's some, another thing that I tweeted was like his problem is that he was too good last year. The Knicks were too good last year. Like if they the Knicks were expected to win twenty eight games last year, they won forty one. If the Knicks won thirty games last year, thirty five games last year, and then they played five hundred ball this year, like people would be fine with what was going on there. That's not the case. And like in this also has been a very weird season. Uh, there were like between COVID and people like being out and people getting injured and like, like there's a lot of stuff has happened that I'm not ready to just be like, Oh, Tibbs is doing a terrible job because I don't think he is. I think the, the, he's doing fine. Weird stuff's happening. Uh, the team is regressing. Like players on the team are regressing from last year. And like, I don't think that's his fault. Like last year, Julius Randall played out of his mind. This year, he's come back to earth a little bit, and I don't know, like, if he was still playing the way that he was last year, like, the Knicks are a better team, and no one's blaming Tibbs. Like, I, I just, I, I'm not going to buy into that, and I think I, I went into it more than I anticipated and more than I wanted to, but, like, that's, that's where my head's at. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not getting too worked up on the, on the Tibbs of it all. He's, he's good. He's, you know, does he make some, some puzzling moves, maybe with rotations or – is he a little stubborn as far as not just never playing Obi and Randall together? I, I think that the numbers still show that those two are a positive when the, when they're a duo on the court, they're like still the positive plus minus. Um, by the way, Clyde talking about plus minuses every game has become like a new sort of bingo, just a, a fun little nugget. Every single game talking about plus minus minus <laughs> kills me. The OG. He's, he's, he's great. Um, yeah, so I think we could talk about the week coming up. We've got three road games against the three, four, five seeds in the East right now. Um, first Monday in Cleveland to play the number five Cavs. Then on Wednesday in Miami to play the Heat who are currently third in the East. And then Friday night, Knicks, a 10 p.m. start, by the way. I don't know. Are we going to stay up for that, Kenny? That's way past my bedtime. 10 p.m. start. Good Lord. I mean, it's it's in Milwaukee. It's not even on the West Coast. Come on. Um, But, yeah, and and the Bucs are currently the uh, 
sitting fourth in the East. They're five and five in their last 10. Actually, of the three teams, the Cavs are seven and three in their last 10. They're kind of the hottest of these three teams. But three road games, three very good teams. Um, we're coming off a win here. We've got a little momentum. What do you think, Kenny? What, how do you think this team's going to fare in this next week? Oh, man, Tom. Every single time the Knicks win a game, I, I think to myself, this is it. This is when they turn the season and like, start playing better. I want to think that, but like this is this is a tough stretch of games. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say one and two. I, I think they sneak out one of these games. I don't know which. Like I have a gut that for some reason says it's Milwaukee, but who knows, Tom? I'm gonna say take the one and two week. I think one and two is fair. I think that that makes sense. Um, you know. I'm not really keeping up with some of these teams. Is there anyone like injured or is there anyone out with COVID protocol or is, is everyone around? Like is Jimmy Butler in the mix? Is, is Giannis playing? I, I don't know. Did Jimmy Butler just get in a fight with someone? Did I see that? Maybe he'll be suspended. Is he I suspended? I don't know. I I'll feel like do some more research to, to actually have a, to weigh in on who, uh, which of these teams I think the Knicks could beat. But I think one and two feels right given sort of where this team is right now. Um, so I, I think, you know, we'll manage our own expectations here and go with one and two. Um, but Kenny, I think we've reached the end of Nick's talk. I think that it's, it's probably time for everyone's favorite sub podcast and that's what else is on. So Ooh. I'll ask you now, what, what else is on? What else is on Tom? Uh, mostly I've been watching football, you know, uh, so nothing too crazy there. NFL, NFL playoffs are going on. Uh, I did watch a uh, movie last night. I watched the Eternals Marvel movie, Marvel superhero movie. I'm a you know fan of the general superhero genre, uh, but that one not my favorite of the Marvel movies. I think it was a it was a tough task because it was basically like I don't know five, six, seven people in an ensemble. And you're trying to introduce all of them, develop the characters, and like have a plot running all in a, I think, what, two, two, two plus hour movie? Like it was just a big task. And I, I don't know that they did uh, as well as they have in, in prior movies on it. So, a little disappointed, but you know, it's a Marvel movie. It's all good. You know? That was the Kumail Nanjiani movie, among others, I know. Is a... yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of people in there. Angelina yeah. Jolie, um, uh, the, their leader is a very famous person. That their, their name is escaping me right now. Well, while you think of that, um, I'll just say I, I do feel like that's the Selma, sort of hmm? – Sorry, Selma Hayek. Oh, sure. And, the, and then also Kit Harrington's in the movie. Um, Jon Snow. Jon Snow, as well as uh, Rob Stark. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. Um, so both of them are in there. Yeah, I feel like that's the kind of plot or a task that you undertake for like a mini series, like a ten episodes, an hour an episode. Like you get ten hours of content, and you can sort of tell that story in a movie. That's pretty tough to do. I'm with you. Yeah, and that's so. That's what the I mean. That's what the Avengers was, right? Like each of them had their own standalone movie to develop characters and like develop like work towards this bigger plot. But this is the same amount of people that you're developing plot on the run while trying to develop the characters. And it's just, it's, it's tough. And I, I don't know that it, it hit, hit its mark on that. Yeah, you can't have the same level of attachment to these characters you just met as you do to, to all those Avengers. I'm, I'm with you. Um, what about you, Tom? What's, uh, what else is on? Oh, what if, I mean, last night, Rose and I watched a movie. We were just trying to find something. And we ended up watching the descendants and you know, this is a movie that came out in like 2011 stars, George Clooney, and it was nominated for best picture and it won best adapted screenplay and Clooney was nominated for best actor. And so we're like, uh, I mean, and it had, you know, we do the rotten tomatoes thing and it's really high, highly rated by critics and by audiences. So we're like, Oh, it's a, it's a can't miss. And we watch it and we're just like, I'll be honest, we stopped it 20 minutes before it ended. Rose fell asleep and we didn't finish it. Maybe the ending is mind blowing. I think after we wrap up this podcast, we'll probably just watch the last 20 minutes of it just to figure out what happens. But 
it was just like a pretty slow kind of meandering man movie. Like the performances are fine. I, nothing about it struck me as like this, you know, critically acclaimed beloved movie. It was just a movie. So I don't know. I'm, I'm still, when I have time to watch a movie, I really kind of want to be blown away by one. And I, I've been having a hard time recently. I feel like this has been a downer of a, what else is on, but let me, let me throw in one fun fact. I haven't seen the descendants. Um, but it did make uh, its rounds around my office because that, it, that was previously and kind of still is my profession. Um, I believe it's about George Clooney, like as a trustee of a trust mm-hmm. that ha- with family property. And like, so like in my, uh, you know, employment, I have stumbled across scenes from that movie and people talking about that movie, but I have not seen it. So it's fine. Like if you want to just kill two hours and, you know, it's a pl- perfectly pleasant movie, I guess, but, um, you know, it's sort of a downer as well. So, you know. yeah, I mean, if we want to, we want to get kind of more, maybe more positive, I don't know. Um, we, I, I don't, I don't know, uh, how much you got into station 11 in the last, your last, what else is on? Um, but we could talk about that because I, I think we both enjoyed it. I really liked the ending to that. I, I thought it was, it was really, I mean, spoilers, if you haven't watched station 11 and you plan to, we're going to get a little bit into it right now, but you know, I think you go through much of the series believing that Jeevan is dead or I don't mean the fact that he was never shown to have died would probably lead you to believe otherwise. But at the same time, there, there had to be some catastrophic reason for him to have left Kirsten. And uh, you know, you get some real just closure and, uh, it's, it's a nice moment when they actually get to reunite. It's, it's a real feeling like it's earned and there's, uh, I, I think it was rewarding is the word I'd use to describe it. Yeah. And I, I was texting you, you and Greg both watched it before me and I was texting you like live as I was watching it. And I was so angry when I thought she even left without reuniting with Kirsten. Yeah, like, like I was so barely missed. It felt yeah. possible in the moment. Yeah. yeah, because no, it's like they set it up that way because like she just she walked by in the background and he just missed seeing her and then he's like, okay, I'm leaving. Bye. And I was just so angry because it's like, oh, that would have been nice, but like maybe, I don't know, maybe that's some sort of storytelling thing. But like the fact that they they met back up, like I was I was pleased with that. Yeah, and the fact like they kind of make plans for the future to for you know even to bring the family around and they're going to add this place to the wheel and it was nice. It was it was a good ending for a movie that you know it could have had darker endings, right? You had the the child uh, Haley, I think her name was, with the the landmine, and you're just thinking like, is that where this is going? Like the it wouldn't really be in keeping with the tone of the show, but at the same time they've kind of done that before too. So who knows? They might bring it back. Um, yeah. Maybe the show was a little gentle in the way they treated the, the prophet. Um, he was probably kind of a bad guy and he sort of gets a hero's send off a little bit, but um, you know, they, I, and I, and I also expressed this to you and Greg, like that was kind of my one qualm with the whole thing is like how the prophet was treated at the end. Like people were just like, okay. And my general reaction was the same as, I think it was Clark's last mood, uh, last words in the, the yeah. show, which was what the fuck? Yeah. Like this guy, it is my understanding. And maybe I missed something that like he basically killed a couple of kids. And then he was planning on doing it again, like sending a bunch of kids in with landmines to be soldiers. And then the main character, Kirsten, Kirsten talked one of them out of it. And then like he made up with his mom. So we decided not to do that. And we're all just okay with this. <laughs> Yeah, that is a talk about a complicated character. No, you're right. Like they're saying if the prophet gave the sign, then they showed, I mean, just hundreds of children prepared to do battle. I don't know what they were going to do. It's kind of unclear. But from what I understand, just from having listened to some podcasts, like in the book, the prophet is a more malicious, evil character or at least he's like treated more that way. Cause I feel like he was fairly evil in this show. Um, Did it, so was the book ending different slash darker? Do you know? Did I read the book? I'm not going to read the book. I don't know about the, the book ending, but I will say that I know in the book, 
Kirsten and Jeevan never meet. <laughs> that's not a, so, not a relation. The, the, the show is like, so the show made it a uh, So it was the same thing that happened in the show, except he wasn't there at the end. Is that, uh, well, you wouldn't well, know. No, no, no I'm sorry. No, I, I meant like they never spent any time. To, like they, never, oh. they, they were never in the apartment together. Oh, apartment. like, wow. <laughs> like the show really. <laughs> a completely different thing. That became the entire story of this TV show. And it wasn't even source material from the book is what I was saying. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's kind that of is interesting. <laughs> All right. I, I think we, we've gone on long enough. I, I enjoyed that show and, uh, yeah. despite that despite that my qualm with the ending like i i enjoyed it it had me thoroughly entertained yeah same here i thought it was well done really and my favorite part was still the tribe called quest rap scene that was with good frank i mean that's so fun um that was good and it came out of nowhere yeah all right guys well thank you so much if you're still listening to this we appreciate <laughs> you go ahead and give us go into apple Podcasts, where spotify wherever you get your podcast give us Five stars, rating, leave a review, say something nice. And um, yeah, we will, we will be back next week. You can follow us on Twitter, at Talkin' Nicks, on Instagram, again, at Talkin' Nicks. Follow me, at Tom underscore Piccolo. Really appreciate you all. Um, and for the whole Talkin' Nicks crew, we will talk to you soon. Next day. Be-